Those of you staying in here, uh, as I said, we're going to the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there, and maybe we'll get somebody to be kind enough to walk through the auditorium if you didn't get those handouts. Uh, Let me just get our minds moving this morning. Just kind of a wake-up moment as we get started here this morning. Name something you might find around the house right after Christmas is over. What's that? Trash? What else? What's that? A dead tree? (laughs) Oh, oh. You sound like my granddaughter. My granddaughter said to us, we don't need gifts. You give too many gifts. So we said, okay, we'll take them back. Nope. Then the the tune changed real quick. Anything else they find after Christmas? Leftovers, here's what they said. People, boxes, pine needles, there's your dead tree. Food wrapping and presents, uh, unwanted presents. Name something a really thrifty, this is just, some of this got really bizarre in answers. Name something a really thrifty person would reuse after birthday party. Tissue paper? Wrap, decorations, what else? What? Candles? What did you say? Here's what they had. Tablecloth, decorations, plastic cups, paper plates, wrapping paper. Why would you keep the paper plates if they're used? You wipe them off, run them through the dishwasher. (laughs) Name a food some people might prefer to eat burnt. Hot dogs dogs are going to be there. Marshmallows are going to be there. Good answer. Toast is going to be there. Pizza. Burnt pizza? Do you eat pizza? You do, you, do, do you do pizza for breakfast? Pizza? Oh, okay, okay. Here's what they said. Hot dogs, bacon, steak, popcorn, and marshmallows, and then toast. Name something, this one, name something a slob might never clean. <laughs> you got to be more specific than anything. Kitchen counter? Toilet? Oh, this is getting worse than what I thought. <laughs> Here's what they said themselves. Okay. Clothes. I mean, never clean your clothes. Your car, your kitchen, bathroom, I guess toilets on that one, and your bedroom. Ooh. Okay. Name a public place you immediately want to wash your hands after, being, after you leave there. Restrooms? Where else? What's that? A store. Okay. Hospital's going to be there too. Gas station? Okay. Here's what they said. Gas station, church. (laughs) You do understand church, right? Because we shake hands. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Shopping center, the zoo. I want to wash my hands through the zoo. Uh, Restaurant, the hospital. During now, this is, this is, see, true or false, okay? This is testing your understanding of Pennsylvania. During PA Farm Show Week, which is this week, we normally have bad winter weather. It, it is false. Farm Show started, anybody remember what year it started? 1917. Okay, Farm Show's been going since 1917. Okay, during that time, since 1917, during the week of Farm Show, how often was there measurable precipitation? I'm talking measurable precipitation. How, how many times in those, since 1917, how many times was there measurable precipitation? What percentage? Five what? Oh, okay, okay, okay. That was 22. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Okay, it's 12, 29, 22. Okay, in, since 1970, what percent of the years did we have measurable precipitation? What did you say, 30? Too high. 20, too high. 18% of the time. That's less than one out of five, one out of five times. Okay, that is happening. And yet every one of us thinks, why do we think that? 
because we keep hearing it. <laughs> Farm show week, we're going to have bad weather. So, you know, my, my point on this is just, okay, we hear something, we hear something, but we need to go and say, okay, what is the correct thing? That happens with the Bible, too. People keep hearing certain things, and then they, we, we propagate it. Okay, we propagate and keep it going. So what I wanted to do is take some time. We haven't done this in this, in this type of setting. I preached a series once since then. But since uh, the last time we did a study in this type of adult Bible study situation was 10 years ago. Uh, I'm sorry, 2010. 2010 that we went through the book of Revelation and took our time going through it. So I wanted to do that to make sure that we understand what is this book of Revelation, what it's all about. Now, when we're starting with it, what do you have to understand to get the to study it to get the most detail out of it? Most people want to jump and right away want to take prophecy and current events and time together. But if you're going to do a genuine Bible study that's really accurate, what what do you need to start with? What do you what do you what information is important to deal with in any book study? The background information. The background information, it helps, by the way, if you look at your notes. There's the answers, okay? Um, your background information would include who's the author, why was it written as far as the occasion, who got the letter, what was the purpose of the letter, and the unique features. Do this with any book study that you do. Anytime you do your devotions and you say, okay, I'm going to pick up the book of John, I want to read it through, understand who John was, what his perspective was, what his main themes are. Do that with any book of the Bible, is understand the context or the background to it. So when we start, okay, the very first few verses of the book of Revelation, starting with verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So John is the author. Who is this John? There are several Johns in the New Testament. Who is this one? Okay, what do you, he's an apostle. This one's one of the apostles. What else do you know about him? Background, information. Anything? What's that? He's a fisherman by trade. Okay. What else was he? Is he? Okay, he's James and John, the two brothers. This is one of the one. He's what? He's a prisoner when? When he's doing this book. Okay, he's a prisoner at that point. Um, so when you get that information, uh, what's his nationality? He's Jewish. Okay, is that going to play into how he might write certain things? And what he might know? Okay, so we know that he's Jewish. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the twelve. He's very close to Jesus. He is what, what do we refer to? James, John, and Peter. What do they often call? Uh, the inner three, the inner circle. Okay, the closest ones to Christ. Okay, he wanted to rule and reign. He was looking forward to the kingdom. Because one of the times Jesus talks about his kingdom, what did James and John ask to do? Sit on the right and left hand, okay? Um, he's a church leader at the time he's writing this, and he wrote other books. What other books in the New Testament did he write? First, second, third John. The Gospel of John, okay? So he's penned multiple pieces of Scripture. They might go together. They might tie together some way, somehow. Or even, if you look at John's, the way he writes, he uses certain phrases and certain words throughout his letters, so he has a style. Do people have styles even today in how they communicate? Yeah, okay, so we want to look at some of those similarities. Now, we know this from just this setting of it and from some church history by early church writers. He's the last of the apostles, okay? He started off as a disciple very young. What, happened, what has happened to the other 12 at this point, besides Judas taking out his own life? Okay, they've all been martyred. And as you mentioned at the time that he's writing this, he is not a free man, okay? So we'll see as we go along, okay, that he's writing it. The timing of this letter is very, very critical when we study it, okay? The timing is right around 95. We don't know for sure if that's the exact year, but around that time, okay, 95 A.D. So how long ago did Jesus die, bury, resurrect? Let's just throw the year in just roughly. We're being in round figures. Jesus died, buried, resurrected around 30, 30 A.D. Okay. And so we're talking 65 years later that he is writing. He's pretty old at that point for a person in that, in that era. 
Because if he was 20th time of Christ's ministry, he's now 85. That's, that's a long life for people back then in that century. And so he's writing. He's an elderly man at the time that he's writing it. And when he writes this book, he is writing it from the Isle of Patmos. What's he doing there? He got exiled there. He was a prisoner. He was, he was the, the story goes, the Bible doesn't say this, but the story goes that he was, um, he was persecuted by the emperor Domitian, I think it is. Domitian, I think it will be coming up in the next slide. Domitian was against him because of the growing um, influence of Christianity, and so they persecuted him. Some suggest that he was put in a boiling pot of oil. As part of the persecution, he still survived. And then to get him out of the, after he survived a physical persecution as being an elderly person, he was taken to this island, which would be an exile island. Just get him out of the mainstream of communication, talking to people. He goes to the Isle of Patmos. And while he's there, he's writing this book. He is, according to church history, he's there for a year. Okay, because Domitian dies, and once he dies, then he's brought back, and everybody's freed who had been under it. My point is, he's an older guy, he's gone through a lot of difficulty, he's worth listening to. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Um, the, you, you know better than these people. Like when I've traveled to China, okay, um, I had credibility. To, one of the reasons I had credibility to speak was appearance. What, what would... You don't laugh. Okay. Um, old. I'm old. Okay. What contributed to that appearance of age? Okay. The, the combination. Yeah. See, you laugh because you know me and the credibility isn't there. But, but John, John was worth listening to by his, his relationship to Christ, his experiences... Because he's going to be writing to churches who are also experiencing what? Persecution. And so that's very important. He's somebody who can relate to what these people are going through. And so he has great credibility, what he's going to write. And part of the reason he's telling them about the future... Now think about it. If you're there, you're suffering persecution, what might carry you through? What would you say? Hope. Okay, so he's giving the light at the end of the tunnel as he's giving prophecy. He's telling who's going to win. You know, we may lose the battle, but who's going to win the war? Okay, so he's giving that information. It's very important to understand that, that where, he's, where he's coming from. The occasion for the book is, as we said, he's, um, he's persecuted. He's there. He's there for that year. He's given multiple visions. He makes it clear in this text, in the first few verses, that God is giving him visions. And then God tells him, write these things down. Okay, so he's clearly getting it from the Lord, clearly told to write. And uh, what we understand, again, this is church history. And I say that, that it seems very reliable, but it's not as reliable as the Bible. The Bible is what percent accurate? Okay, what about history stories? Okay, now uh, there's the possibility of inaccuracy. Um, but the, what we have from the earliest writers from right around 110, 120, the earliest church leaders, they write that he was uh, returned uh, from the exile and went back to Ephesus where he led the church there. Um, as he's writing this, who, who's he writing to? What did you say? The seven churches. Where, where do we find about them? Chapters 2 and 3. There's seven churches that he's writing to, and uh, he's giving them information. But let's expand that a little bit more, okay? Even though, for instance, the church, the book of Romans, who's it written to? The Church of Rome, was it intended to be broader in reading? Okay. Uh, was it intended for even lost people to, uh, to get exposed to it? Yeah, we know that. Okay. So other, like the, like the different Gospels, different books, they had a targeted group initially, but that targeted group also included you. Correct. Okay, so the Word of God is written to all of us in a general sense. Okay, 
is the Word of God intended at times for lost people? Well, this book is, this book is, because this book, remember how it ends? He that is thirsty, okay, let him drink. He that is, has an ear. Okay, so this book has, has some immediate target and a more general, broader target. So the immediate target are the seven churches in Asia Minor that you can read about in chapters 2 and 3. And um, we're not going to deal much with chapters 2 and 3 in this discussion. Okay, I, I don't want to get hung up in those, and I'd be glad to do it in a series another time. But it's seven churches. That just gives you the area that they are at. He has probably visited. Some of them are known, have been started by the apostles. Others were started by other people. But the majority of those churches, the seven that he's writing to, it's interesting when he studied a little bit about their background and what he says. Most of them, it's not a real positive statement even though they've had good history. In time, they just kind of waned in time. But he's writing to those people, but we want to say, understand, he's also writing it with an open mind that maybe the lost people who are sitting in a service or who are interested in the future might pick it up and read it. And so uh, he's writing to those who are thirsty for the Word. Why is he writing in particular? Let's, Let's keep it to the initial audience. Why do you think he's writing those seven churches? With what you know about chapters 2, and three, or what we just alluded to, why is he writing them? What's, he, what's his purpose of sending them this information? Any, any guesses? Correction. Okay. That's a major part of it because the majority of them, uh, I think it's five or six of those things, uh, those, latter, uh, those churches talked about, there's criticisms of them, and only one is positive. He wanted the churches for the idea of, one, to commend them for what they have done, which he does in most of them. Two is to correct them for what they're doing wrong, which makes perfect sense. If we got a letter from the apostle as a group of believers... Could we be commended for some things? Yeah. Could we be corrected for some things? Yeah. Okay. So he's writing with that in mind. Why would he write prophecy to them? Does prophecy have any impetus, stimulus for correction? Sure it does. Does it have stimulus for keeping on going? Yeah, okay, so he's writing as well to give them details about God's program, and he's he's going to give a lot of details. So he's encouraging them to do right, make things right through giving all this. And as he starts in the book, look at verse 3. It's a really interesting phrase that he uses. Blessed is he that reads, they that hear uh, this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. What he's saying there is those of you who are engaged in this book and then apply this book, there are special blessings. The blessed is that idea, just like the, uh, uh, what do we call them, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, he's promising certain blessings for those who would engage in this book. Now, when we study the book, and I, and I know I'm belaboring the introduction, but this is really critical. There are certain features about this book that make it unique from other books. When you read the book of Revelation, is it easy or hard as a whole? Why? What is, kind of, what is in the book of Revelation that kind of, it makes it a little bit difficult? A lot of symbolism. A lot of symbolism. What were somebody's? The imagery. Okay. Uh, for most of us, that's tough. Okay. So we know that it's filled... Here, let me give you some other features. It's filled with a lot of Old Testament references. A lot of the things in this book have been mentioned in the Old Testament, which, by the way, that plays into his Jewish background. So if you go through the book, and of the 404 verses, 300 of them have some type of information about something already mentioned in the Old Testament or referenced the Old Testament. So if you're going to understand the prophecies given in the book of Revelation, what must you understand? The Old Testament already, what it's already laid for some of the prophetic foundations. Um, The books that you have to, the book you have to understand and study is the book of Daniel, chapter 9 in particular. 
Um, we're going to get to that and reference it, but you, you won't, you'll, you'll be lost in the book of Revelation if you don't have some of that background information. Um, the other thing that we said is a lot of prophecy, tremendous amount. The title itself, Apocalypsis, is the unveiling, literally, the revealing. And so it's the idea of telling the future uh, right within its very title. There are a lot of numbers in this book. More than most Old Testament prophecies, he's giving a lot of numbers. Can you think of some of the numbers that show up in this book? 666 shows up. Three and a half years. Seven, a lot. Seven seals, seven vials. Um, What else do you have? What about the Jewish preachers? The 144,000. Okay, you got 42 months, 1,260 days, lots. You have 1,000. Where does 1,000 appear? The the Revelation 20, the kingdom, 1,000 years. So you've got a tremendous amount of numbers. The idea that you've mentioned that makes it a struggle for you and me both is the symbolism. Okay, so just taking this, and again, this is background information. When we approach symbolism... When we approach imagery, is that how you put it? Okay. Um, when we approach that, let's keep a few rules in mind. Okay. Some helpful, helpful thoughts. Okay. That when we interpret these things, try to determine the main topic or subject within the vision that he's describing, the text that he's describing. What is the main point of what he's talking about? What is the main idea? Okay. Check the immediate context. Is he giving clues? He talks about seven mountains. Uh, he talks about that idea of, you know, horns growing out of the head of the beast. To help understand that is go and see if there's other verses that deal with that. Like in the Old Testament. Don't just jump on and say, okay, seven hills must mean the seven hills of Rome. Okay, Right? People right away, the seven hills mean the seven hills of Rome. Well, at times in the Old Testament, hills referred to in symbolism, they refer to kingdoms or kings. Okay? So you have to do a little bit of background study and not just jump and conclude that Babylon is the seven, sitting on seven hills must be the Roman Catholic Church. That could be, okay? I'm not saying it's not. But don't make that conclusion without saying, wait a minute, is seven hills always seven literal hills around the city of Rome? Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is the, is the whore of Babylon. Um, I'd be careful with that. Extremely careful. Do I, do I think that they're corrupt? I do, doctrinally. Okay, but at the same time, don't jump with that piece of prophecy and then apply it there without doing a little bit more background information into that context of that study. We'll get there. You'll see what I mean when we get there. Um, But also keep in mind, not all the time, which makes it, you're comparing, not every time does it mean the exact same. Um, There's a theology that's given that is, to me, is, is very dangerous okay, when you're interpreting Scripture. It is called first usage theology. What they mean by that is this. Whenever a word or something shows up, the very first time it shows up in your Bible, then it always means that type of thing, okay? The problem we have with something, um, for instance, let me, let me just, I'm just going to grab something for silliness. Um, uh, dragon. Okay, dragon, you immediately think what? Serpent, Satan. Okay, it's, it's fire breathing, an animal or symbol. And they would say first usage, the first time it shows up dragon, then that means everywhere else in the Bible a dragon is used, it means that same thing. Does that make sense? Okay, is that correct? It can't be. Now, here's the problem for you and me. What determines first usage? You and I would probably say, well, let's go back to the book of Genesis. Okay. 
But was Genesis the very first book written? What, what book may have been written? I'm not saying its material isn't the first, but it might have been written after what other book? Job might have been the first book that was written. So which one is it? We don't know. Okay? If Moses wrote the book, the book of Genesis, which we often think, and he is giving the history, but he wrote it after Job wrote, well then, what's our first usage? Or in America, what do we typically think first usage? The order of the book. Okay? And were some of the books placed in order, not chronologically? Yes. Okay, so that creates a problem for us. Um, and so... Here's, here's the one that, throw, that comes up. First usage. Day. The evening and the morning were the... Okay. What does that mean? Who, we who are literalists, we think evening and morning refers to what type of a day? 24-hour day. Is it Therefore, day always refers to 24-hour period. Is that true? We are living in the day of the... Okay. Uh, I'm going to quote a specific phrase. The day of the Lord. Is the day of the Lord a 24-hour period? Not in the usage in the New Testament. So first usage, it can't be supported by Scripture, but it is often purported by people. Does that make sense? Be careful of that, okay? Uh, that sometimes the way they're used, and, I, and I, I left it open. Mountains at times refers to kingdoms and kingdoms. But do mountains always refer to kingdoms? Just Mount Ararat, Mount Everest. Uh, not Mount Everest. <laughs> Mount Sinai, Okay. <laughs> So, um, so, and I'm not trying to confuse it, but I'm just trying to give you caution. Okay, let me, let me give you another thought here. We, you view each vis- a vision as a separate piece of a whole. Okay, they are part of a big picture. And yet we want to view them individually, but we want to keep them within line of the bigger picture. Yeah, they, they have to fit into the bigger picture. Does that make sense? When he's given a vision about the 144,000, well, that vision has to fit into the rest of the tribulation period. It's just not an independent, uh, totally independent thought. So when we're approaching it, here's how we approach it in what we call literalists. Literal approach understands this idea that in literal communication, we do use things that we're meaning literally. But also, when we're speaking literally, we might use figures of speech. Do you use figures of speech typically? Do you use exaggeration at times? You say, "Ah, I could die for burnt pizza. (laughs) Common sense, what are you saying? Do you think that person right there is suffering a heart attack? Do you think they're starving? Common sense interpretation. Literal interpretation understands they like burnt pizza, which the rest of us go, what? Okay. Um, do, do we use phrases? Uh, what, what's, what's a unique phrase to this region? What? Ewans? A while. Yeah. Can I get you something a while? Red up the room. Out in the light. Yeah. Stop your rich and I'll give you something to rich about or fresh about. Yeah. We use, did they do that in Bible days? Did they have colloquialisms? Did they have idioms? They did. But if we don't understand their culture and their idiom, we might take something and misinterpret it. So when, when we say a literal interpretation, this is a literal interpretation, the way approached. Jesus says, I am the, to the sheepfold. What does he say? I am the door. 
Please don't, don't get silly. But we get accused of this all the time. You're a literal literalist in your interpretation. Therefore, you must believe Jesus has hinges on his side. A literal interpretation doesn't ignore symbolism. Doesn't ignore, ignore figurative. It, it's basically people are talking like people are talking. Okay? They, people talk all the time with symbolism. You know, Jesus saying, I'm in door, interpret it literally. What is he saying? I'm the way. I'm the entryway. That's all it means. I'm the one access point. That's a literal interpretation. Because we understand he was using illustrations, symbolism. And so we understand the same thing, that when we come to the book. And so when we're coming to the book, if you wanted to outline the book as you do a study... You're going to, chapter 1 is going to be your introduction, and it's in verse 3, he says, write these things, um, where, I'm sorry, uh, f- further down he'll make that, uh, verse 1, he'll make that, that I'm, I'm goofing myself up, verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter, that's your outline of your book. The things which you see, chapter 1 is going to be the vision of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, the things which are, is the seven churches. They are at that moment. The things which you see is going to be the future. So the part of the book, and you'll see how this unfolds in just a second, okay? That, to me, helps me to understand the book. That chapter 2 and 3 are not prophetic, but they are dealing with present reality. That's going to be a whole other interpretation of the book, how people approach it. And so to me, this is extremely important. You write about what you have seen right now, John. You write about things that are happening in your world right now, the seven churches. And then the future is going to be chapter 4 and following. Not chapters 2 and 3. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Okay, um, why is it many people avoid studying this book? You've already mentioned it. It's harder to understand than most of the books. Probably the only other books that are close to hard of understanding are going to be like uh, Leviticus. Okay, some of the law and the legal system. Um, Book of Job is pretty hard to understand. Okay, this is one of those top ones that people say it's too difficult. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult? Probably the thing we've been talking about the most. Oh, 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 it's, I'm so glad you brought that up, okay? That, that John doesn't write like Americans think. It, it, is, it, it is not an American written book. It's written from Middle Eastern thinking. Do we read and think and write history the same as they do in the Middle East? Not at all. Not at all. So that makes it very hard. It's the chronological display of the book. Consider these facts, okay? The book was written to people. And God is going to communicate to people the way people communicate with one another. Story, imagery, like as. We do that all the time. Okay? God's going to communicate that way. That's the literal interpretation. Understanding God communicates like people communicate with one another. Except for God's is totally accurate. Understand that this book should be studied because he gives a special blessing to those who hear it, that idea of those who understand the book. Therefore, it can be understood. Daniel says in chapter 12, he says, close up, seal up the books until the latter days when things will be more understandable. And so in the latter days, which he talks about in this book, when he says in verse 3, for the time is at hand, he is giving information for that period of time that we are entering into the latter days, okay? And so we can better understand the book. And especially as we approach the more of the latter days, the book of Revelation makes much more sense to us than any previous generation. For instance, the two prophets die, in chapter 17. Then what happens to them after they die? And they're in the streets for three and a half days. They rise up and there's a phrase, the whole... Do you remember who sees it? The whole world sees it. P- 
people for generations didn't understand that. And so they struggled with, how is it possible that the whole world sees something like that? What do we have today? In the last 50 years, what do we have? Yeah, we can see an event immediately. Okay, uh, so, so things are making more sense to us than what, you know, years ago, the mark of the beast, okay, would be on the right hand or the forehead. Okay, and you couldn't buy or sell without it. Okay, Revelation 13. Can't buy or sell without it. People in ancient days, that was more of a struggle to understand how's that work. Do we understand the possibilities more? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's better understood as we go along. It's part of God's Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration. All Scripture can be understood. God commanded John to make it available for study. He wrote about it. So it's worth our study. Okay? And again, you know this information, but let me run through it. Just, It's God's last words are usually the last words of people considered important. Okay, these are God's last words. It contains information not revealed in any other book in the Bible. Okay, we have reference to Antichrist in John's epistles and in 2 Thessalonians. But we don't get as much detail until we get to Revelation 12 and 13. Um, so th- this gives us a whole lot more details. It ties together all the prophecies. You take Daniel, where he gives the time period of the seven years and the breaking of the covenant in the middle of the point of the, the seven years. You get that information. You put Matthew 24 and overlay it upon that. And also Matthew 24 makes a whole lot of sense. But then you put the overlay of Revelation on top of all of that, who you've got so much more detail. That is just phenomenal. God says he'll bless those, and yet there are, it is still confusing. Okay, and I want to highlight this point, and again, we're not getting far, but this is so important for you. When you're studying the book and you pick up commentaries, when you go to the Internet, figure out what these people come from when they approach this book. There are different theological... Um, let, me, let me do it this way. Um, some of you wear glasses. Some of you should wear glasses. Okay. So do all glasses give you the same vision? No. Okay. They don't all work the same. And so when you have different theologies or different approaches to the book, might you see this book differently? Absolutely. There are four major theological divisions or approaches to the book of Revelation. When you pick up a commentary, and by the way, be extremely careful, the majority of the books that are coming out now are from a Reformed theological position. Reformed theology does not accept the idea that Satan is running rampant. Reformed theology doesn't accept a millennial kingdom doesn't accept a physical return of Jesus Christ to the Mount of Olives. And so be very careful when you're doing with some of the modern commentaries. But let me, let me point out what we have. There is the pet. It's called the preterist. Okay? This is a, how some interpret it. And early church, if you're, a, if you're a reader of early church writers... And they have tremendous influence on how you interpret things. You're going to have a tough time with the book of Revelation. Because the early church writers adopted this point of view. They didn't understand. They didn't have time period. They just, it was new to them. And they understood the book of Revelation to be very similar in application and in study to all the other writings of John. That it was dealing with the here and now. And so they approached it from this point of view. They basically can says that the book of Revelation is a record of events happening then and now. And so it was talking about John writing history of the early church from 30 to 95 AD. And so they basically understand the book of Revelation as being the church versus Roman Empire, Judaism, and paganism versus the church. And so when they interpret, they're going to see a lot of the symbolisms are the Caesars, or they're the Jewish leaders, or they're the paganism of that day. 
And so they're, they're going to see their, their imagery becomes a lot of what was in their di- time period. And they were approaching it from that point of view. Does that make sense, how they were doing it? Yes, no? They were, they were basically, John is writing, and if, if John were writing it today, and this is not a political observation, John's writing it today, we would grab it and say, oh, the, the corrupt Babylon is Washington, D.C. The corrupt Antichrist is President Biden. Okay? Um, the, the <laughs> this, is, this is better than I thought. Um, the wicked woman that is propping up Antichrist is Nancy Pelosi. Okay. <laughs> I, that, that, this is just off the cuff. That, that's the way they were looking at saying it's our world, okay, at that time. And then so they don't see it as prophetic. They see it as present commentary on their world. Okay, so when you read the early church fathers, that's where they're hung up on. That's where they stay. They don't talk about future things. They talk about everything present. Um, there is there is a, another view. This is called historical. This is where chapter 2 and 3 become very complicated, and a lot of commentaries do this. A lot of radio preachers do this, radio TV. They do this historical method. The, and, uh, and this basically says that it's not just history to their point uh, up to John's day. That's the preterist. What they're saying is it's history of the church from 95 A.D. until the end of the world. And everything in here, you could identify different periods of church history as what's happening in the book. So it had a future aspect, but where we're at today, those who who write the books today say we're here towards the end of church history, we can identify different things in this book by what has happened in church history. The, uh, the stones, the 90-pound hailstones that fall from the sky. This view is going to find where in history it happened. And that's the fulfillment of it. This view where it says the waters turn to the blood, find it in history. And that means the fulfillment. Okay. You and I are going to say, no, that history is yet to come. Because this is talking about the tribulation period. They're finding no tribulation period. Just this whole, you know, find it in history. Do you see, with that, that little tidbit, do you see a danger of interpretation? What? Make history fit the book? What happens, what happens if you found one event and you found one event and you found one event? You, you can put it to all kinds of events. You can just keep on finding events. And so your interpretation of the book keeps on changing. They did this especially in chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 2 and 3, they don't think they're literal churches, but they're church eras, church time periods. That And this was held to by a lot of early church writers and up in the early Catholic Church, that if you look at the church of Ephesus, for instance, in chapter 2 and 3, that really wasn't the church of Ephesus, but it was a time period somewhere in church history. And so they break it down. You'll find charts. You, you go online, you'll find stuff like this. You'll find that the church of Ephesus was, in some people's view, from 30 to 100 Okay, and then the next church of Smyrna, they put dates to it. And then they put dates to it. And then they put dates to it. What did you just say? Based on what? That's a really good question. Based on what? Personal interpretations. So what happens with this is as you read and you start going through and you find this point of view... The question is, well, who determined which time periods? There are over 50 different suggestions of interpretation to this viewpoint alone. 
With that in mind, what does that bring you to a conclusion of understanding the book? It's well nigh to impossible to uninterpret the book. This is popular. This is popular yet today because it gets rid of the prophecies and it means there's no rapture. We're living in this time period and basically eliminates the tribulation and eliminates judgment of God upon planet Earth. And so it has profound impact on how you interpret the book if you see it as purely historical. Does that make sense? Okay. Then there's, um, then there's this, okay? The idealist or the spiritual, excuse me, wow, the spiritual method of interpretation. This basically is, it's all allegory. Nothing is literal. It's just basically like Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables give good morals, illustrations. And in Aesop's fables, how do they usually end? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Usually thumbs up. Good overcomes evil. That's all this book is about. Forget all the different ideas about judgment and, you know, the seven seals, the seven... They don't mean anything literally. They're just the idea that good is overcoming evil and basically, in the end, wins out. There is no such things as a second coming. There is no kingdom. There isn't 144,000. Everything is just good overcoming evil. And so you end up there. We're, so far, does any of it sound appealing to you? Okay. Futurist. Okay. The futurist says that he is writing about events in chapter 4, the things which should come. He's writing about future events. In that, he's promoting literal interpretation. The futurist holds the idea that 42 months means 42 months. 1,260 days means... 1,000 years means 1,000 years. Jesus coming from heaven on a horse, followed by the leagues of his troops, is... Jesus coming from heaven on a horse with all of us following. Um, that's, that's this point of view, the futurist method. It's, it's the literal approach. I find this the appealing approach, okay, that we're coming from. And uh, that's what we teach. That's how we're going through it. So with that in mind, let's keep this in, as I wrap up. We get prepared to see the unusual. What I mean by that is this. Okay, we're trying to interpret visions that were given to a man living in 95 A.D. A man living in 95 A.D. is given a vision of 2023. What might he not understand? Okay, give give me uh, objects that he might be confused by in his vision: cell phone, TV. Okay, airlines, cars. Okay. What's that? Military weaponry. What might he describe some of those things by? Let me me give you true history. Okay. Indians in the West. What was the iron horse? What did they call the iron horse? The train. The The Western, the, the American citizens who are on the East, I'm not discounting the Indians from being Americans, but those who are on the East, did they call it the iron horse? They called it a train, a locomotive, okay? But people who saw it for the first time, how come they called it an iron horse? Was it serving the purpose of a horse? Okay, was the material... Okay, so they're using things they understood to try to uh, describe something they didn't understand. So if John is seeing a vision, okay, and I'm not saying this is what it is, but if John is seeing a vision of nuclear weapons coming out of the ground, what might he say that they are like? 
Could they be like, could they be like locusts coming out of the ground with fiery tails? Could they be like a beast? Now, here's one interpretation. There's an interpretation of, the, of, of metal chest, long hair, teeth, making lots of noise, that it was rock music. <laughs> the metal chest, the long hair, the noise. And so it was a lot of the, you know, well, that's one way of looking at it, I guess. Okay. But is there, is there the possibility that when we look at visions, we have to consider John might be describing stuff that could be in our world that wasn't in his? How do we know which one it is? We don't. You're right. So John is writing, and keep this in mind as a wrap-up. John is seeing a lot of heaven. Okay? He's seeing a lot of things out of heaven. What do we learn from 2 Corinthians about when, if it's Paul, that he died and went to heaven, what do we learn about that man? What was he told to write about his experience? Nothing. He says, things that are, that I wasn't to share and things that were beyond my comprehension. I always, that always makes me wonder about people who have these experiences in these books and these movies, how they far exceed the apostle in being able to come and give all kinds of information that he wasn't allowed to give. So he writes and he says that some of these things he was told he wasn't supposed to write down about heaven. John is told to write some things for the first time we're getting glimpses that nobody else has ever seen. And yet they are hard to understand. So with that in mind, this is a great book to study, but we need to be careful as we approach it. Let's pick up next week from there.